Hey, everybody. Welcome into the podcast. We are back with another special bonus episode. Bonus episode. Today, we are resurrecting our My Favorite Movie series. It's been a little while since we've done this. This is the series where we sit down with a master distiller or a CEO uh, of a distillery, and we talk about their brand. We talk about different expressions of their whiskey, but we also talk about their favorite film. And today, Brad, we are joined by somebody that I have been waiting to talk to for years. I'm so happy to have this opportunity. We are joined by Chris Morris, who is the master distiller at Woodford Reserve. I cannot tell you, Brad, how excited I am to get into this. Uh, Woodford has meant a lot to us over the years, and I hope we get a chance to convey that today. But Mr. Morris, thank you for joining us. How are you today? Very fine. Thank you, Robert and Brad. Um, what a great introduction. I'm overwhelmed. <laughs> well, it sounds like we're off to a good start. We, uh, we're we interviewing Mr. Morris here the week after the Kentucky Derby. As you all know, it, it got delayed into September. I definitely watched and I definitely had a mint julep. But as you know, if you're a fan of the Kentucky Derby, Woodford Reserve is the sponsor of the Kentucky Derby. They are the official bourbon of that horse race. And I have to ask just right off the bat, what is Derby Week like at the Woodford Reserve Distillery. I mean, I know that, that your marketing and PR people must be going crazy, but from your point of view as master distiller, is there anything that the distillery does to kind of ramp up for the Derby each year? Well, it certainly does. And obviously this year was an exception, Robert, but uh, normally, and we have been the official bourbon uh, now for 21 years. So we've got 20 normal years under our belt <laughs> of having Derby Weeks. And literally, the distillery is flooded with visitors, and special uh, outdoor um, uh, areas are set up, tents are set up, fabulous dinners are served, lunches. It's one big celebration throughout the week. It's just so fun. And unfortunately, this, this year, it was quiet, as you can imagine. Yeah, and you you had to be a little bit excited. I I have a friend whose father works for Spendthrift Farms, who was part owner of Authentic, and I know that you guys work personally with Spendthrift as well. So that had to be pretty exciting for you guys to see him win. Yes, yes, and um, I remember last year going to Bob Baffert's barns back on the the backside and visiting with Bob and his lovely wife. And again, we weren't able to do that this year. It would have been fun to have uh, been in the Derby winners stables prior to the race, of course, not knowing authentic would win, but I did because he was my bet. But um, <laughs> in Spendthrift, as you notice, old friend, as are many other, the great horse uh, farms in Woodford County and in neighboring uh, counties. So uh, it is a special time for us. Well, it sounds like Derby week was just great all around for you personally and professionally. Uh, yes, we still had a lot of fun. We did a lot of virtual meetings and tastings and presentations. And and um, the network had come out a couple of weeks ago to the distillery and all with, uh, with the proper cautions filmed some of the spots that were on the national telecast. And, and we were filming uh, segments for Churchill Downs' um, uh, social media and just a, a lot of fun. And we still... we. Still had that derby attitude uh, going all the last couple of weeks. Well, if we could step back for a moment, you know, we're, we're going to get to what it's like to be the master distiller at Woodford Reserve. But I want to walk through your bio with you a little bit here. I am just so impressed at how many different positions that you've held in the industry and, and for how long you've been doing this. Chris actually began his career in bourbon uh, in 1976. 
And according to his bio, he was a trainee in the Brown Foreman lab. And I think it's really great to see somebody that kind of came up through, you know, the R&D and the science background of things that has has come all the way up to being a master distiller. Brad, we've talked to quite a few master distillers, and not a lot of them actually seem to come up through the ranks that way. Yeah. And honestly, for me, I am a whiskey drinker, but I'm not a whiskey scientist. And I was wondering for like any of our listeners who are not whiskey scientists, what's the coolest sciencey thing about the process of making whiskey? Like, is there anything that you just think is really, really cool or neat that you could explain to our listeners? Oh my gosh. Well, that's a big, big question. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much, uh, so much we do know and so much we still do not know about the science, for example, of maturation, what happens to our spirit in an oak barrel. Uh, We can analyze the contents of the barrel of wood reserve and know exactly what's in that, that glass, but how did some of them get there? We, we still don't know. And that's, I think, the interesting thing. We're always learning uh, about our wonderful product and the processes we use. And just the debates. I was uh, had a nice uh, conversation with a, a uh, Hall of Famer from Scotland uh, who disagreed that water has an impact. And I thought it did. But of course, their water doesn't have an impact because they don't use the water we have. I mean, it's just good fun. Always good to have debates. One of the things that reading your bio really stuck out to me, Mr. Morris, is that you you joined Brown Foreman at a time when the bourbon industry was really kind of on the decline. You know, the 70s and 80s were especially low points in terms of sales. And I'm just kind of wondering, what was it like for you, you know, just starting out in the industry to come in at that particular time? You know, what kind of innovations did you see the industry have to create to, to get over the hump? And what was it like kind of seeing the industry right the ship, you know, from the inside at that time? Well, quite honestly, Robert, when I joined Brown Foreman in 76, uh, that was right at the peak of, of bourbon, mm. um, just at the very peak. I remember the old timers saying every year we put down, we grow, we'll grow 3% and, and we will. I mean, it's just like, they were just so proud that you didn't have to think a lot. You just made more every year. Sure. Again, I hit it right at the peak and everything went downhill from there. Uh, boom. So I remember in the mid eighties um, thinking, will we have jobs in the future? Uh, Brown Foreman was d- diversifying. Uh, we were running the Brown Foreman distillery just three months a year. You know, things weren't looking good at all. And, um, and I've seen the trough. I've seen the deaths of, of the decline, mm-hmm. obviously, and what reserve is part of the story about the rebound of our industry and moving on to uh, uh, the, the, the new era. Our industry has always had eras of ups and downs and challenges. And uh, just as we're getting getting our feet back under us, uh, here it comes COVID and other other things and uh, tariffs, and uh, we'll we'll battle through them and keep on going. Well, and with you being promoted to master distiller at Woodford Reserve in 2003, you know, I, I think a big part of the shift back towards whiskey has been all of the the crazy experimentation that's going on. And that's, you know, partially what you're really known for. You know, you created the world's first bourbon to be finished in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir barrels. 
So, like, talk to us about that. What made you say, hey, you know, bourbon has been in this place for this amount of time. We need to push the envelope. You know, what brought you to that place? Well, certainly during those early years, there were no whiskey magazines. There were obviously no podcasts. There, there were no books being written about whiskey. The last book that had been written about whiskey um, was in 1964, Gerald's Carlson so- Social History of, of Bourbon. And then there was nothing because who mm. cared about whiskey or bourbon in general? And then we see Michael Jackson publish his encyclopedia and with Way Mac and Harris and Gary and Marty Regan in the, in the early 90s start to write books. And the magazines start to come out about whiskey in general and bourbon specifically. But there was a general theme that bourbon could not innovate. Bourbon was painted in the proverbial corner and scotch whiskey can be innovated because, of course, Dr. Bill Lumsden had given us the first port finishes and sherry finishes and mm. Madeira finishes and just doing terrific things in Scotland with single malt scotches. And that ticked me off. I'm a competitive person <laughs> and I certainly know Bill Lumsden and others and nothing against them, but like, who says we can't innovate? Right. Uh, just because the rules say we always have to use a new charred oak barrel to be bourbon who cares what the label actually says if we make something that tastes good? So that competitiveness to, to show these individuals, these writers, that we can be innovative, we started experimenting with, with finishes, obviously going into used barrels, Chardonnay barrel, Pinot barrel, Port barrel, sh- Sherry barrels, you know the story. And, uh, and we got a lot of grief for it. How dare they? How can they? It's not bourbon. And like, read the label, folks. It doesn't say bourbon. It says bourbon finished in a Chardonnay barrel, for example. Um, yeah. You had to say that. And that was the truth. Now it's taken for granted. Everybody's doing it. But uh, we took a chance. It, it was, it, again, some rough times personally. If it failed, I was in trouble. But uh, 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 not in really trouble. But it wouldn't have done much for my career. But um, you take a chance and it worked. So it was more of a competitive response to people saying we could not do anything. And we sure have done it now. Red corn, blue corn, white corn, um, using um, cherry wood smoked malts and chocolate smoked rye malts and things like that in our in our master's collections and distillery series. Even with COVID, not people recognize uh, we just put out five wood. It's gone now. The first whiskey to touch five different barrels. Again, we keep on the edge. Um, just sometimes people don't notice anymore, I guess, because there's so much going on. Well, I mean, you're, you're hitting the nail on the head here. One of the things that we wanted to talk to you about was the idea of the master's collection at Woodford and how that came to be. And in doing a little bit of research, we found that the idea for the master's collection came from this internal document that you created, which was called the Woodford Reserve Charter. And I am really interested to hear what, what, what was the, the, the basis for that? What did it mean for you to be able to put something down on paper and say, this is how we're going to define this brand moving forward? You know, Brown Foreman, the oldest spirits company in America, our 150th anniversary this year, um, also uh, owns the iconic Jack Daniels brand since 1956. And Jack Daniels had a distillery charter. And those, that was written in 1955. And, and this is how we're going to run the distillery, how we're going to run the brand. And I thought that was just brilliant. We need a charter too. And so I wrote one. 
And I took the words of Owsley Brown, the late Owsley Brown, our chairman of the board, who was responsible for the creation of Woodford Reserve. It was his vision to create this new bourbon brand. And, um, and Owsley said that the distillery was going to be the home of innovation. And I took that to heart. We're going to innovate. And I don't know exactly what he meant by that because he's passed away and I wasn't able to ask him. But I put my own interpretation of innovation, which Mm -hmm. means a lot. And also, just because a distillery is in Kentucky doesn't mean it can only make bourbon, Kentucky bourbon. And when I realized that, it was a freeing moment for me. The weight was off my shoulders. We can make whatever whiskeys we want. And, of course, we made Kentucky's first ever single malt. We didn't call it single malt in the Masters Collection. We made the first 100% rye whiskey in the history of Kentucky. Uh, We made the first of so many types of whiskeys because we can do it because we can. Well, and I think that there's no better example of that than the whiskey that we have in front of us right now. Woodford Reserve was kind enough to send us samples of their double-oaked expression, which is, incidentally... Uh, one of our very favorite bourbons in the world. I cannot wait to get into talking about it. Uh, but one of the things that I love so much about Double Oaked is that it has one of the most unique backstories for a bourbon that we've ever seen, Brad. Yeah, you guys took kind of a, you know, this Double Oaked idea, but you guys were the first ones to use not just like a second used barrel, but a second brand new barrel. So, like, why was that important to you? Did you know that that would make it a better product? Or was it genuinely just kind of saying, hey, let's throw it against the wall and see if it sticks? Uh, Because I'll I'll tell you this, it definitely has. It is spectacular. Well, thank you. Our rye whiskey, our malt whiskey, our wheat whiskeys have all come in some form or fashion from the Masters Collection, as does Double Oaked. So, we had created seasoned oak finish. I studied a lot about the impact of aging wood out of doors. And the seasoned oak finish, it was just a a wonderful whiskey in the early master's collection. And we took fully mature wood for reserve and finished it in brand new charred oak barrels that had been made from wood that had seasoned or set outside for up to five years, which is about four and a half years longer than anyone ever has used before. And having that experience, that was, that was information in the back of my mind of what impact various woods have and styles of wood. And um, getting a lot of requests from consumers for something special on an everyday occasion. We had our standard wood for bourbon, and then we had the master's collection. I mean, you talk about two two very far apart propositions. You can buy the standard bourbon every day. You can't get the master's collection hardly ever. Mm -hmm. And people wanted something special every day. And I thought, well, we don't have eight, nine, 10 years to develop an everyday special whiskey. And it literally dawned on me and I was out taking a walk one evening. We're going to finish with reserve in a brand new barrel. Bing. Now, I got to get a little more developmental than that, but that was the basis of the concept. Hmm. And, of course, we have our own cooperage, the Brown Plumman cooperage, and um, having your own cooperage means I can walk into the cooperage and let's start developing experimental barrels based on toasting and charring, um, which are how 
oak gives us their flavor. And that led to about after a couple of years of work to the double oaked barrel, which is a heavily, heavily toasted 40 minute toast and a very light five second char um, barrel designed to finish wood preserve. And no one ever made a barrel specifically for the whiskey going in in terms of finishing. The fully mature Woodford goes into the second barrel between 95 and 98 proof, a very low entry proof, fully mature whiskey again, and up to a year, depending on the flavor, in the finishing barrel. Again, that goes to my philosophy of flavor and finishing, which is never put Wood Reserve in a barrel that has flavors in it that Wood Reserve doesn't have, Mm -hmm. uh, number Mm -hmm. one. And also... Everything other than our bourbon has to highlight or focus on one of the five areas of American whiskey flavor. In other words, to highlight one of the spokes on the American whiskey flavor wheel. Our rye focuses on spice, our wheat focuses on fruit, our malt focuses on grain, and double oaks designed to focus on sweet aromatics. Again, so you have to have a philosophy, you have to have a rationale. In other words, you have to have a roadmap. How are we going to get here and how is this going to deliver that promise? So Double Oaked was designed according to those parameters and, um, and it came out better than I expected. Well, I think that is an understatement, sir. And, you know, we we did not let anybody in on this that we were going to tell you this up front, but we actually just recorded an episode of our podcast where we featured Woodford uh, Double Oaked as the whiskey of the week. And we gave it a full review and everything else. But we talked a little bit about our own backstory with Double Oaked. And that is that, you know, Brad and I both lived in Kentucky for a time. We were going to grad school. And when uh, when I first moved to Kentucky, I said, I really want to try going on the bourbon trail. And I was not a bourbon drinker at the time. And the very first place that we chose, which was the closest to us, uh, was Woodford. And so the first tour we ever took, my wife and I, was Woodford Reserve. We thought it was an incredible tour. And at the end, they gave two little samples and a bourbon ball. And the first sample was the the standard Woodford expression, which I really liked. And they said, okay, now take a sip of the double oaked. And Woodford double oaked was the whiskey that got me into drinking whiskey. And so in a way... Uh, I don't think this podcast would exist if it wasn't for Woodford Double Oaked, because that was the one that really made me understand, okay, I, I get why people like bourbon. I can taste something different here. I didn't have the language at the time, but that really became the one that, that started me off on this journey of drinking whiskey and, and bourbon in particular. Well, that's, that's a terrific story. You know, our assistant master distiller, Elizabeth McCall, um, speaks to lots of women's groups and, and women wine clubs and things like that. And so many, so many of the people she talks to say, I don't drink whiskey. I don't drink bourbon. And when she tries them, just as you expressed on double Oak, they're like, oh my gosh, I can drink whiskey. This is a whiskey I can drink. It's like, you know, we just given them, given them a, a, a new reason to live. It's just tremendous. I think that is very <laughs> true of so many people who try double Oak. It just opens their eyes to our industry and breaks, maybe breaks them the uh, misconceptions, the stereotypes of bourbon as being rough and harsh or whatever the case might be in someone's mind. And I'm, I'm so glad to hear your story because that really confirms what, uh, what we keep hearing. Yeah, Chris, I've actually run into the same thing. You know, I, I work at a winery where I live and I'm also a little bit of a coffee snob. 
And what I've realized is that all of these different products, whether it's wine or whiskey or coffee or tequila, all of them have really cool, interesting things that can diversify the palate for the beverage. But all of them are convinced that their beverage is like the only one that can be unique and crazy and interesting. And they want to reduce all the other ones down to like, you know, oh, yeah, it's, it's bourbon. It's just harsh and and and, you know, it only tastes like caramel and that's it. And I'm like, well, well, no, like all of them are unique and interesting. And for me, trying all of these different things, you know, widening my wine palette, widening my coffee palette has helped me appreciate whiskey even more. And appreciating whiskey even more has helped me appreciate those other things. So I, I just feel like there's so much potential to enjoy all of these things rather than just saying, well, no, I'm I'm just a wine drinker, just a whiskey drinker. Well, and, and to that point, uh, even within our own company, uh, my friend, our winemaker at Sonoma Couture in California, Mick Schroeder, he's been putting our award-winning Pinot Noir in used with reserve barrels, and it's just awesome. And we've been putting our used double oak barrels into special releases of Herradura tequila down in Mexico, and it's it's a $130 bottle of tequila. So again, uh, we start to cross-pollinate flavor profiles with uh, Woodford and double oaked and lots of microbreweries love with reserve used barrels. I think it's just tremendous. And I would never say I love a good glass of wine or a, a, a tequila. I just, they're just different flavor profiles. Mm -hmm. Well, and the, the beautiful thing that we're talking about here is the evolution of all these different products. And I think that another category you could put that into is movies. Right. Whenever you look at film, you see this evolution where film noir turns into, you know, the films that you get in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And, and so you can see all these different influences. And Chris, you know, we were told that you have two movies that you are kind of torn between to talk about. So, you know, Bob and I just said, heck, let's just talk about both of them. You are curious about talking about The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951, as well as The Searchers in 1956, which are two just spectacular movies. And I can easily see why you're torn between them. But but why don't you fill us in? What makes you love these two movies so much? Oh, gosh. Um, well, The Day the Earth Stood Still is black and white, and The Searchers is an absolute beautiful color. Uh, mm -hmm. So they're both different presentations. The Day the Earth Stood Still is when science fiction movies became serious and intellectual and had a story about you know, the world needs to stop nuclear proliferation or it's mm -hmm. going to be destroyed, uh, in this case by intergalactic police, policemen. But uh, and the nations of the world have to get together and cooperate. We're one world, not, not the Soviet Union, not the United States, not India, as obviously portrayed in the movie. Your choice is simple. Join us and live in peace or pursue your present course and face obliteration. We shall be waiting for your answer. The decision rests with you. I think that message is, is even more important today. So here was a science fiction story, which had special effects, which were 
awesome for the time. Well, they're still pretty good. And, uh, but, a, but a good message, and of course, the day the earth stood still, how can you peacefully tell the world to, hey, pay attention? And that, mm-hmm. of course, is what CLAT II, uh, the intergalactic policeman, um, does. And also, it just has fabulous, fabulous actors, Patricia O'Neill, uh, yeah. Michael Rennie, a lot of good stock characters you'll recognize in other movies. Um, it was it was just I, I watch it quite often. I mean, quite often, you know, a couple of times a year now. But sure. uh, it it just had had a message, and it's an exciting story too. And if you want to see Aunt B from Mayberry when she was a nasty, mean lady prior to Mayberry, she she is. <laughs> So, Chris, I'm wondering, you know, both of these movies are from the 1950s and especially The Day the Earth Stood Still. When did you first see these films? Were were you a young person when you first saw them or did you discover them, you know, as an adult? Well, The Day the Earth Stood Still, I'm sure I saw back in the early 60s when one of our local television stations, Wave 3, had a movie they would play in the afternoon back when there were only three stations. And... uh, if it was a rainy day or if it wasn't in the summer and we weren't out playing in the yard, uh, we would watch the movie. And it was always something that would interest kids, of course, Cowboys and Indians, and uh, Ray Harryhausen movies, you know, things like that. And uh, so I'm sure I saw it then. And the searchers I did not until I was an adult studying. Um, I get the big books on movies and this and that and big John Ford fan but also a big John Wayne fan and what a mm-hmm. good combination of Ford and Wayne. And I did not know uh, the searchers until I saw it for the first time, what a, a artistic masterpiece it is. And of course it's consistently rated as one of the top Western genre films ever produced. And um, it's, it's physically visually striking. Of course, a great story, again, a moral it has some funny moments. It has serious moments. Mm-hmm. And again, what a what a group of actors and actresses from Natalie Wood, Ward Bond, and all of John Wayne's cronies who he took from movie to movie yep. with him. I love that aspect of it, too. He was a very loyal person. And he had the mm-hmm. same cast of characters in many of his in many of his movies. Harry Carey Jr., for example. And I really like that. I like that that loyalty that that we don't seem to have in a lot of places anymore. Yeah, you you mentioned that, the, you know, this is a great John Ford movie. It's also a great John Wayne movie. We've done some reviews on on movies that they've done in the past. And I'm curious, why do you think that Wayne and Ford just did so well together? What was it about their chemistry that they just made great films? Well, I love that term chemistry. And again, thinking about how it pertains to our industry. Um, you know, Ford and John Wayne, John the Johns, they went back to early Hollywood when John Wayne was a, a, a like a, a gripper and then a stuntman uh, for John Ford. So he knew him from a young age. They knew each other for, for so many years. And they just, you know, obviously you can't work together all the time in Hollywood, but they they grew up, they grew up together. And it's sort of like in our industry, I I cherish the time I had with my mentor, Lincoln Henderson, who's no longer with us. Still, of course, the the great Jimmy Russell over at Wild Turkey has been so kind to me. 
and over in Scotland, Richard Patterson, you know, people you have met and known for years, and you might not see them for a couple of years, and all of a sudden you're together. Let's have a drink, and you're 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 reliving old times. So our industry, these long-term relationships, um, have been so important to me and my development and the great opportunities I've had. And I think that's reflected in the relationship that Don Ford and John Wayne had. You know, before we move on in, in asking questions about the movie, I just want to point out that one of the things that we love in particular about the bourbon industry is that even at the level that you all are working at, where, you know, we're, we're talking millions and millions of cases that you all are moving each year. There seems to be a real camaraderie and a sort of friendly competition among master distillers, even at, at your level. And I'm wondering if you could just maybe press in just a little bit more on that, because it's it's pretty rare to find an industry as big as the bourbon industry where people seem to really know and appreciate and respect each other, even if they are competitors. Well, certainly, I think the industry, as it develops here in Kentucky prior to Prohibition, worked together because it was always under attack, always under threat from from uh, the temperance movement, the pre-Prohibition movement. And, you know, you had, you had to ally together to, uh, to survive. And then a lot of the early bourbon barons owned multiple distilleries. So you had master distillers working together because their ownership was the same person or persons. And then you had a lot of cross-pollination. Like our founder, George Garvin Brown, in 1870, he was buying whiskey from a number of distilleries, three distilleries. Their owners... He, He's naming kids after them, and they're they were so close, <laughs> and they worked together, even though they were different distilleries. Yeah, and um, so we grew up that way. Coming out of prohibition, of course, we we rebonded and grouped together. Uh, oh, and and my father, my father here working at Brown Foreman, he was always going to dinners, meetings with the other distillers, uh, and. And I just grew up with that. You know, we're having dinner here and I'm the host tonight or so-and-so yeah. was the host tonight. We drank their whiskey. And I'm like, that doesn't make sense to, to a kid. And that's, that's the way it is. And so today we, we do the same thing. We, um, we get together um, less frequently now sometimes because everything's so big, as you mentioned. There's so, much, so many demands on our time that we don't quite get together like we used to, mm -hmm. unfortunately. But we still do. You know, there's festivals and events we might all be at together, share the stage together. Some of us, not all of us. It, it's, uh, it is a camaraderie, uh, male and female. And, um, and I really appreciate that. And I do think it's interesting because this is the only industry I've been in that uh, other industries are not like that. They're, I mean, they are cutthroat. You're a competitor. I can't even be in the same room with you. And, and we don't have that problem. Well, I think what you're talking about, Chris, is that there's just a lot of trust between the competitors that like, hey, we're all working towards the same goal. We want to put out really good whiskey. And and I think when I think about the searchers, one of the reasons it works so well is because I think that the Johns trusted each other. And that leads to one of the very few movies that you see John Wayne as the bad guy in. And I, I'm curious, how do you, how did that sit with you that, you know, this is not your typical John Wayne film, but I think he kind of shines because of it. That's a good observation. And again, it can be quite troubling 
if you think of these great Western stars, as you you know, as the the knights in white shining armor, the white hats, and they're always wonderful. And yes, he's quite dark in this movie. There's this tension throughout the movie and these subplots and personalities. And he is focused absolutely in his hatred and of the, the, the thought that his niece has been kidnapped by Native Americans. And uh, yeah, it's, it can be troubling. And then he sort of redeems himself. Or I think he does redeem himself at the very end when you expect him to kill his niece. No, Ethan! Let's go home, Debbie. And he picks her up and says, let's go home. And, uh, and that brings tears to your eyes. So, yeah, he was quite the dark character. Well, and I think that, that that's one of the things that really sets this apart as a John Wayne film. But you were kind of hinting a little bit earlier that the artistry of what John Ford is doing here, the camera work in this movie, it is just a gorgeous film. Is Is there anything about it the themes, the performances, what sets this apart from every other Western for you that catapults it into being your favorite one? It, it really is filmed with an artist's view. And if you like the art of Remington, uh, for example, uh, it's almost that opening scene of looking out the, the, the door out into this this stark yet colorful landscape, um, it's a painting. They are, it's, it's, there's a series of paintings in this movie that are just terrific. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just wasn't shoot them up, go, go, go. You know, every scene was, was designed visually by Ford. And it's just striking. And how and, and it ends at that same doorway. I mean, how, yeah. how, poetic you open and close the movie in the same doorway that's so cool well chris you mentioned earlier that that you're you're kind of a fierce competitor and with that in mind we here on the film and whiskey podcast do our seasons with 32 movies and at the end of each season we take the movies we put them into a march madness style bracket uh-huh. with the premise that each movie we choose to go on means that the other movie is thrown into the fiery chasm, never to be viewed again. Now, if I put The Searchers and The Day the Earth Stood Still into that bracket, which movie would you choose and which movie would you throw into the fiery chasm, never to be viewed again? Oh, my gosh. What a tough decision. <laughs> well, welcome to our pain, my friend. <laughs> oh gosh! Of course, I chose two polar opposite visual right movies. My gosh! <laughs> and of course, the Searchers has been never been repeated, and the, the day the Earth stood still has oh, sure the new version. Right? Yeah, we don't have to talk about that one. Yeah, I know. I know. Thank you. Um, <laughs> But maybe because of that, I'm going to have to sacrifice the day the earth stood still mm. and go with this and advance the searchers if that's possible. Well, we appreciate you going through this. Like Brad said, this is the hardest mental gymnastics we have to do 
once a year uh, to, to go through all of our favorite films and find reasons to try to pluck them out of the fire. But you heard it here first, folks. We are throwing The Day the Earth Stood Still, his apparently favorite film, into, uh, into the fiery abyss, never to be watched again. So We didn't even talk about the, the film scores, the music. They're both brilliant. Oh, truly great. But but what I'm hearing now is that you're trying to rescue this film even as it as it burns here. Yeah, see, I don't want to give up. <laughs> well, Mr. Morris, we are so, so grateful to have you on the show today. You know, we've interviewed a lot of distillers and a lot of CEOs, and it's always a good time to do this episode. But rarely have we had someone on the show that represents a product that is so near and dear to our hearts. And so honestly, what Woodford Reserve has been to us, we can't overstate it. And I just want to thank you. For, for setting us on this journey that Brad and I have been on together. Uh, honestly, we could not have done it without you. Well, that's so kind. And again, I really am thankful that you discovered Woodford Reserve Double Oak and, and we had the chance as a result of that to speak today. Everybody, this has been Chris Morris. He is the master distiller at Woodford Reserve. Chris, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you both. Hey everybody, it's Bob and I am here to tell you about a really exciting giveaway that we have going on right now. We are partnering up with Universal Studios Home Entertainment. They are releasing the Alfred Hitchcock Classics Collection, available now in a 4K Ultra HD combo pack with Blu-ray and digital codes. You guys know Alfred Hitchcock, one of our favorite directors. We've already done Vertigo and Rear Window on the podcast. Well, this collection includes four of his most iconic films. You've got Rear Window, you've got Vertigo, you've got The Birds, and you've got Psycho in stunning 4K resolution. Best of all, this collection actually includes the movie Psycho in a never-before-seen uncut version, the version that Hitchcock actually submitted to the U.S. censors. They had things trimmed out of it. It is now fully restored and in Ultra HD. D. This collection features hours of bonus content, including documentaries, expert commentaries, interviews, screen tests, and much more. It's got the stars you know and love, James Stewart, Grace Kelly, Janet Lee, Tippi Hedren, Kim Novak, and much, much more. And the best part is, they want Film & Whiskey Nation on board with the Hitchcock Classics Collection, and so they've given us five digital copies of the movie Psycho to give away to you. And Brad and I have been thinking about the best possible ways to get these five copies in your hands. So we've created five different ways that you can enter to win a copy of Psycho. The first is to give us a like on our Instagram post about this very topic. So go to our Instagram, like this post. Secondly, join our Discord. We've been trying to drum up support for our Discord. If you become a Discord user, we will draw a name from a hat and pick a random follower from our Discord to get a copy of Psycho. Third, if you go to iTunes, leave us a five-star rating, leave us a review. We'd really like to see your reviews. If you go to iTunes between now and September 21st and leave us a review, send us a screenshot of the review that you posted so we know it was you. You will be entered to win a copy of Psycho. Fourth, if you want to call our call-in line or leave us a message on our anchor.fm, anyone who calls in between now and September 21st will be automatically entered to win. And finally... We are going to be dropping a keyword in every one of our episodes from now till then. If you send us a direct message on any social media, send us an email even, and say, hey, I heard this week's keyword, it is this, 
then you'll be entered to win. And this week's keyword, appropriate for Alfred Hitchcock, is suspense. So send us a DM with the word suspense, and you'll be entered to win one of five copies of Alfred Hitchcock's Psycho. We are so excited to be running this giveaway. It's going to be going for the next three weeks, so make sure to get your submissions in. And thanks again to Universal Home Entertainment.